I invite you please to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 47. In a moment I want to read a few verses from that psalm, Psalm 47. In our series of sermons on the providence of God, we have considered the extent of God's providence. We've looked at several characteristics of that providence. It's holy, just, good, sovereign, and wise. And we have then preached several sermons on God's special care, that is, his special care of the church. Now this morning, our focus is going to shift once again. We're going to be focusing on God's providence over the nations. And in distinction from the providence of God over the lives of individuals, we will be looking at his providence, therefore, over all the nations of the earth. And so we are moving from micro-providence, that's over little things and people and so on, to macro-providence, the entire history and the entire race of all mankind. And please follow along as I read, first of all, verses 1 and 2 from, verse, uh, from Psalm 47. O clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. And then we see similar concepts recited in verses 6 and following. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And so repeated in this psalm is this theme of God reigning over the nations. Now before we look at that theme, let's pray that God will direct us and help us during this hour. Father, we thank you and bless you that indeed you are supreme. And we would not want any other being to be ruling the madness of this world and the wickedness of its rebellion in the midst of all the things that take place. We are comforted and we are given solace knowing that that you will accomplish your purposes throughout the earth and that you are not frustrated. You are reigning supreme and you are the ever-blessed God, the sovereign God that we love and that we adore. Help us, O Lord, therefore, to respond in a way that shows that we have faith in you and we have tender hearts to obey you and submit to you. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In modern Iran, in the ruins of Persepolis, which was a city founded by King Darius the Great, is what is called the stair of all nations. And also associated with the stair of all nations is the gate of all nations. And this was built by Darius's successor, Xerxes, in the 5th century B.C. And the entrance, and there are still ruins, you can still see this, at the entrance of the gate of all nations, uh, there was the protection in statue form of bulls, and there were also mythological creatures called lamasses, which were bulls with the head of bearded men. And these supposedly warded off all evil from the city. And in the stones of this gateway, on the sides as you go through the gateway, is this inscription, 
And it's still there. It's engraven in stone, in Persian, in Babylonian, and also Elamite. A great God is Ahurmaza, who created this earth, who created heaven, who created man, who created happiness for man, who made Xerxes king, one king of many kings, commander of many commanders. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of all countries and many men, the king in this great earth, far and wide, the son of Darius and Achaemenid. And so in this inscription, Xerxes proclaims himself the king of kings, the king of all countries, the king of all countries again, he says. But as great as the Achaemenid or Persian empire was, it only stretched from modern-day Turkey to the borders of, at least what I could tell, what would be modern-day Pakistan. And his empire was conquered later on, only about 150 years after this inscription was made, by Alexander the Great. But as Psalm 47 and verse 2 proclaims, Our God is indeed the God, the Lord Most High, a great king over all the earth. And again in verse 7, we read, God is the king of all the earth. And verse 8 adds that he, he reigns over all the nations. Well, Xerxes ruled over maybe 5 or 10% of the inhabited world, the territory of the whole world. But our God reigns over every nation, over every land on the face of this globe. And Nebuchadnezzar, whose Babylonian empire then defeated Xerxes, he also thought of himself as being a king over a vast empire. But after God struck him with insanity, he was made to eat grass like beasts. His sanity then returned to him, and then he praised the Most High God, and he declared not only that this God is the ruler of all nations, which he himself was not, but also that his dominion endures forever. For as he explained in his prayer, his dominion, that is of the true God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not only over everything that exists now, but it's everlasting. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And you read those words in Daniel chapter 4. The rule of God among the nations this is the gladness of his people. We are happy that he reigns. Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. We read in Psalm 98. It is the special joy of God's people that this universal rule will also last forever. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, your God O Zion, unto all generations. We read in Psalm 146.10. And as we think of the, the same thing being stated in the New Testament, he is said there to be the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, to whom is honor and everlasting power, as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And therefore, as John Blanchard, the English evangelist, puts it, all the world's thrones are occupied by rulers under God's authority. Now, as we take up this subject, we're going to arrange our thoughts under five propositions, and we'll get as far as we can through these five propositions during this sermon. First of all, the first thing that's in your outlines, if you happen to bring them with you, 
God's providence over nations is absolutely necessary. Men and women generally think far too little of God's providence over the nations. In times of great perplexity, when it's all too plain in times of great perplexity that the power of man is inadequate to remove the evils that have descended upon the land, even in such, in such times, the, the, the thoughtful then begin to, to say, in God alone is our help. But if there's ever a time when divine intervention is sought, it's when pestilence stalks the whole earth, as it is in these days, or when strife and war breaks out on all sides. And at such times, we're forced to recognize the necessity of looking to God as the ruler of all the nations, and our nation included. At this present time, we are enduring what is for most of us not only the worst pandemic, but also the worst political upheaval in living memory. For months, rioters have been destroying our cities, and shootings and murders have been skyrocketing as a result of police drawing back on their work. And we look to our government to address these evils. And yet in cities after cities, those that are in power have been pathetically ineffective in stemming the tide of evil that's sweeping our land. They're just unable, it seems, or scared to, whatever it is. Property and liberty and life itself, with all the rights and blessings that are connected with life and property and so on, these things are either powerfully protected or these are ruinously destroyed by whatever government happens to be in place. And when in any way a government fails to do its duty, the supreme duty of a government is to protect the lives of its people, grievances pile up. And all it takes is the sight of one police officer's knee on the neck of a one man who's crying out, I can't breathe, and the whole nation erupts. And political rhetoric on all sides reaches a fever pitch. And the greatest powers of argument... And the greatest eloquence that can be put forth, it's called forth on all sides. And it is, as it were, uh, 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 every, the whole nation gets heated up. But in government of the nations, it's not just one or two individuals like that one man who was murdered by a policeman, but it's the rights of thousands, it's the rights of millions that are at stake. And if a solitary man or a woman's integrity is grievously and irreparably ruined through slander, or if just one person is imprisoned wrongfully, a cry is raised on all sides. And if it's secret and it's unknown, a single cry is raised from a dark cell to the Father of Spirits that he's going to bear his mighty arm and grant deliverance. And if this is so in the personal case of one individual, is it not the case where the destinies of the citizens of a vast nation are at stake. Is it not true that the rule, therefore, in a wise of an, of an all-power God, this is what's, what's required? This is what's necessary? The necessity of this government over the nations, it appears all the more urgent when we see the absolute inability of nations to govern and protect themselves from evil. There are truly few men or women who have the wisdom and the fortitude required to manage nations. This requires incredible skill. And even those rulers whom we admire the most, 
Even with them, there are difficulties that are beyond their ability to control. Every president meets things that are over his head. And those who are most knowledgeable, those who are most eloquent, and those who are most courageous, they're often wholly unfit to respond in the proper way to all the upheavals that take place in their nation. And there are three realities that make this especially evident, and we've listed them in your outlines. First of all, great men are not always wise. Even when we evaluate those presidents that we admire the most, if we are dispassionate about our judgment, if we are not prejudiced, we will have to admit that there were things that that president said or did that were, were regrettable, even the best of them. And this is so in every age. Writing in the year after the Civil War was over, the very next year, William Plumer said this, the affairs of nations are so complicated, the interests involved are so conflicting, the passions of men are so turbulent, and a passage through difficulties is often so narrow and so intricate that learning gives no safe precedence. Eloquence is powerless in the presence of fierce opposition. Courage is as useless as it would be in attacking a tornado. And age and public services are forgotten, despised, or envied. And certainly this was happening under the, tutel, under the government even of that great president, Abraham Lincoln, and then later on after him, Ulysses S. Grant. And at such times, there's a need for, for, for a power and for a wisdom that's above that which can be found in men. Turn with me, please, to the book of First Kings. Solomon grew up in David's house at a time when many differences, and here I want especially you to turn to First Kings chapter 3. He grew up at a time when David's house, when many differences were fracturing the, the people of, of, of Israel. Solomon's birth was the result of a single act of folly on the part of his father. And a civil war broke out in which the wisest men on both sides were pitted against one another. And his father often was surrounded by those that wanted to destroy him. In Psalm 27, 1, David had prayed, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. And I've always found that argument to be very interesting. Why does he want God to guide him? It's because he knows his enemies are ready to pounce on everything he does. Solomon knew also something of the perplexity that often attends people that rule. So when the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at the beginning of his reign, and the Lord asked him what he wanted, what he most desired. He prayed here in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Wonderful prayer. He knew it was above him. I'm a little child, he says. A child, how does a little, little four-year-old govern a nation? That's what I'm like. I need your help, Lord. I need your wisdom. 
And this is prayed, you see, because great men are not always wise. But then also there is a necessity for God's rule of the nation. Secondly, because wise men are often not in power. Now turn with me to chapter 12 of 1 Kings, please. It's often the case that really wise men in any nation are in the minority. And they are not the ones often that are involved in making the momentous decisions of the nation. They see one safe plan after another that they propose, they see it rejected. And at length, eventually, they despair of success. The wisdom is not being received. It's not being put into practice. And King Solomon, renowned as the wisest of all kings, he eventually became a fool himself. He allowed his heart to drift away from God. He married many foreign wives who turned his heart away from the Lord and led him to worship idols. And so in the end of his days, the wisest king in all the earth, he became a fool. And to chasten Solomon, the Lord raised up various adversaries. And one of these adversaries was a valiant soldier named Jeroboam. And this young man was also very industrious. And so Solomon made him an officer over all of his labor force. Little did Solomon know that he was giving him this great prominence in order that he might be his enemy. And in time, a prophet named Ahijah came to Jeroboam, and the prophet tore his own garment into, very, into a number of pieces, and he gave Jeroboam ten of these pieces. And he told him that the Lord was going to give him ten of the tribes of Israel to reign over them. But when he got wind of this, somehow we are not told how it was, but when Solomon got wind of this, he tried to have him killed. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt. And at last Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. And let's read what happened after, Jerob, or after Rehoboam ascended to the throne. Verse 1, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened, when Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, and then come back to me. And the people departed. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he was still alive, and he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be truly be a servant to these people today, and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him. It was wise advice. And he instead consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father has put upon us? And then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. 
Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me on the third day. And then later on we read about how Rehoboam responded to these two pieces of advice that had been given to him. The outcome is recorded in those verses that he is that Rehoboam rejected the wise counsel of the elders. And so the ten northern tribes of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam, and they made Jeroboam their king, just as Ahijah the prophet had prophesied. And you can read of that prophecy back in chapter 11. And in various ways, the same scenario has been repeated time after time throughout history. The foresight of wise men is called idealistic. Prudence is looked upon as timidity. Moderation is considered weakness. Timely boldness is rejected as rashness. And meanwhile, those in power, they are like a boat sometimes that its rudder is broken. It's driven by the winds and the waves, you see, of public opinion. And wherever the winds blow, that's the way they go. They have no strength to resist or do the right thing. Now, the simplest form of government is the government of a solitary king. And if you had a perfect king, that would be the best government of all. That's what's going to make Jesus' government, when ultimately every rebellion is put down, that's what's going to make it really wonderful. So in a sense, that's the simplest form of government. But as soon as you get a representative type of government, as we have, a Republican form of government, it becomes exceedingly complex. And the more freedom there is for the citizens of the land, the more difficult it is for those that are leaders to lead the nation as it has all these political factions and all these interests and all these lobbyists and so forth claiming their share. And because democracy often descends into mob rule, in which the selfish interest, you see, of inflamed multitudes, is often that these things rule the day, wisdom is often sacrificed to the rage of a mob. We're seeing it every day in our own, own, own cities. It's the mob that's ruling. It's their wisdom that's being received. It's their agenda that is being promoted. The agenda of the young people, interestingly, is just as it was with, with uh, Rehoboam and, and the people that came to him. But then there's another reason why God's rule over the nations is absolutely necessary. And the third thing is that wise men are not always disinterested and patriotic. Now, by disinterested, we're not meaning that they're not interested in things. That's not the way we're using that word. I'm using the word disinterested in the sense of being unbiased, in particular by not being biased by personal interest or personal advantage. It's not being influenced, you see, by selfish motives. That's what disinterestedness is. And wise men are often not disinterested, and they're often not patriotic. And here I have in mind making decisions that are motivated by what's best for the country. And oftentimes it's what's best for their political future instead of the best for the country. That's what drives them. And all too often there are many people in politics that are very shrewd. In a sense, they're very wise in that sense. 
but they are either corrupted by monetary considerations or they are unwilling to make hard, unpopular choices that would be best. And then there are some like Ahithophel that see the political winds blowing in a particular direction and become traitors. And some of them involve themselves in secret plots as Absalom and his co-conspirators involved themselves in back in the days of David. A deep plot in Washington, D.C. involving men and women on the highest levels is even now being uncovered by investigators. Time after time, we see our leaders on the floor of the House and of the Senate. They get on the floor and they, oh, they get up to the podium to, to, to go into an unseemly rant filled with distortions and filled with nasty depictions of the people on the other side. And what's best for the people in a time of great crisis is sacrificed, you see, on the altar of, of getting an extreme partisan agenda. And so men and women who ought to understand what should be done for a nation's good, they're instead more driven by partisanship, more driven by what will get the votes and so on. And men and women who ought to understand what should be done, they're often vain, they're often sordidly self-serving. And when wisdom degenerates into cunning, and political maneuvers are adopted to, to, to get elevation as a politician, all in order to get votes back, voted back into office. What happens? Politicians make their appeals, and they begin to appeal to the worst passions, you see, of voters. And the result, dear people, is perfectly awful. 19th century writer Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, he once wrote, it could probably be shown by facts and figures that there is no distinctively Native American criminal class except Congress. And I don't suppose if Clemens were living today that he would revise that sentence in the least. Our country faces some very intractable problems. We've come a long way in repudiating our racist and slavery past. But it's very understandable why some feel they're being discriminated against. It's understandable. There's been a long-standing disparity, for instance, between the rates at which blacks are incarcerated for drugs compared with whites. And the significance of this is that both use drugs at an almost identical rate. And yet about twice as many blacks are put in jail for that very same thing. It's no wonder they feel that it's not fair. And this has been validated by many different studies. And beyond this, there's a genuine fear that many of them have that you and I, many of us, never will have to think about. Never, we, we just doesn't even come to our minds. One African-American being interviewed by World Magazine, and World Magazine is a Christian news magazine that is, I highly respect. This African-American describes how every time he sees a police car, his heart, his, his heart skips. And he said, when a white boy's heart skips, he's worried about a speeding ticket. When my heart skips, I'm worried about getting killed. Now, what, what one of you fathers have had to give the talk that black fathers give their sons 
Will you be sure when the police officer comes that you make sure your hands are out in the open? You don't make sure you, you make any give them that? Well, one of us have ever heard that kind of a speech. I didn't hear it growing up. I never felt like I had to give my son that speech. And on the other side of the political aisle, it's been exceedingly painful to see politicians who seem utterly incapable of condemning violence and the riots that have engulfed our great cities. When night after night, protesters are hurling bricks and other potentially fatal objects at police, this must not be tolerated. When they start a fire in a police precinct and they try to block the escape from that police precinct while there are 20 officers inside, this is attempted murder. And when we see blacks being interviewed who are begging for more police, not less police, because their gangs are killing them, something is wrong. Well, I cite these things not in order to get you inflamed over all these political issues. I'm not telling you anything you don't know here. But I remind you of things in order to stress why we need the intervention of a wisdom and of a power that is greater than all of that which the policemen and all that which our politicians can muster. And above all, America needs the intervention of Yahweh to guide and to govern this nation. You and I rightly fear, I think, many of us, what this next election could bring. But there's something that we should fear far more. And we don't tend to fear this as much. We should fear the departure of God from this land. Our only hope is in God. Our only hope is in a wise, all-powerful, omnipotent Savior. Our great problems... They've come as a result of his already withdrawing from the land to a large degree. And if God would utterly remove his restraining hand, our passions, they would heat up even further. And our free institutions will perish like stubble before a consuming fire. And so divine wisdom cries out in the marketplace. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. Proverbs 8, 15 and 16. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21. But I trust I've said enough to convince you of my first proposition. God's providence over nations is absolutely necessary. But then secondly... Wise nations acknowledge their dependence on God's providence. They don't ignore it. They, they acknowledge that they need it. Sober and wise men of every age, of every land, they have privately and publicly confessed that it's the Lord who made them a people. It's the same Lord also who alone can save them and, and keep them as a people. And many times the safety and the peace of a land hang by a thread. And all the political factions and their treacherous self-servers and the violent usurpers, they stand ready to cut that little thread. And without God's providence, you see, nations perish. God can easily enable weaker forces to defy the wisdom and strength of the powerful. 
the 1770s, the most powerful navy and army in the world sailed from the, sh sailed from the shores of England to America. And the little ragtag army that didn't have proper equipment and sometimes was on the brink of starvation, that little ragtag army defeated the mightiest, mightiest army and navy in the world. And now the mightiest armed force in the world, the Air Force and the Army of the United States, it can't bring the little measly Taliban in the Afghanistan into submission. And in 1948, the combined forces of the Arab world, they could not defeat tiny little Israel. See what I'm saying here? God could take a little force and frustrate the plans of others who have greater power. We could look at the Vietnam War. We could look at other wars like it. And again and again, powerful states have expended millions and even billions of dollars and they've sacrificed thousands of precious lives while God continued to teach his creatures that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the strong, but God is the judge of all. And this truth is abundantly displayed in Scripture. To Abram, God declared, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, Genesis 12, 2. And even before Isaac was born, Isaac was going to be the channel through which this great nation would come. Even before he was born, when five kings and their armies took Sodom captive, Abraham, armed with just his 318 servants, he went and rescued Sodom along with his nephew Lot from the hands of those five kings, those nations. A little measly, a little ragtag army of servants that are not really even fighters. God used them to win. And when at last the descendants of Abraham began to multiply in Egypt, God led the Israelites out of Egypt. And Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had the mightiest army in the world. He was utterly frustrated in trying to deal with them. You remember he was, he was drowned in the sea. A little shepherd born named David, full of faith in God, with five stones and a sling, felled mighty Goliath. And God began to save his people from the Philistines. And many years later, Sennacherib came to Jerusalem with his mighty army at a time when Judah was greatly reduced in strength. But Hezekiah, God's servant, God's king, prayed. And the Lord, you remember, sent an angel out, and he smote in the Assyrian army 185,000 men, and they've all fled, whatever was left of them. Throughout history, God has continued to show how he is still able to bring down the mighty. In the death of Stalin, a very dark comedy about Soviet-style succession, the 74-year-old tyrant Stalin, one of the most evil men that ever walked on earth, he suffers a stroke at his rural Dhaka and discovered on the floor hours later by the chambermaid, he was soaked in his own urine. He's unable to move or speak. And as this is taking place, as high-ranking toadies, they argue about protocol. And they try to figure out what doctor there is that Comrade Stalin hasn't already murdered. And the man, you see, who oversaw the deaths of, of tens of millions, he, he dies, you see, within earshot of sycophants squabbling over his bludgeoned empire. 
Many others who terrorized the world have met a similar ignominious end. When the Allied armies were closing in on him in Berlin, Hitler's holed up in his bunker where he blows his brains out. Mussolini is struck up by a mob. Saddam Hussein is dragged out of a hole to face a judicial trial. And again and again, God continues to confirm that he is the ultimate sovereign over the nations. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. Psalm 33.10 Elihu confirmed the same truth when he said of the Lord, When he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? Job 34.29 Those who are wise, they will acknowledge, therefore, God's supreme authority over the nations. Those who are wise, therefore, will fear him. The Lord is their supreme governor. They've rebelled against him. We've all rebelled against him. And what prosperous nation has not grown fat and kicked against the Lord? I dearly love my country. I think it's special, extraordinary, the way that God caused this country to come into existence. I, I bless God for things that he's enabled us to do around the world since the time of our country's birth. I love our country, and I want its best. But this must not make me blind to the mad quest of multitudes after the best luxuries this nation has to offer. It doesn't make me blind or shut my eyes to the terrible oppression that exists all around the world, all because CEOs in America want cheap labor. And neither can I overlook the oppression that exists even in our own borders and the hatred that exists between the rich and the poor and the outright slander and lies of our politicians and the brazen contempt for authority that's in display all throughout our cities during these days. It doesn't make me shut my eyes to the looting being defended as a means of reparations now and the violence and the bloodshed that's staining our streets. And so I feel terribly torn in these days. On one hand, I want to see peace and prosperity come back to my beloved land. And on the other hand, I feel constrained to take God's side. And I feel constrained to pray, Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Psalm 9. And at the same time, I take comfort from the fact that God will not let man prevail against him. I take comfort in the fact that even in the midst of what appears to be terrible chaos, the Lord still reigns. Charles West put it this way, We turn to God when our foundations are shaking, only to learn that it is God who is shaking them. And this is wisdom. As we've been trying to say under the second main heading, wise nations acknowledge their dependence on God's providence. And now in the third place, notice with me that God's providence over nations is a call to prayer. Please turn with me to Psalm 144. Dear ones, our God can deliver us. He can deliver our nation from all of its troubles. And ultimately, it's not our president that's going to save us. 
It's not courageous leaders in Congress who will deliver us. It's not the Supreme Court that's going to save us. Our situation, dear people, is so dire, we can only look in one direction, and that's up. I remember my dear friend in Catskill, Bruce Myra, telling me of the time when, due to a serious back injury, God put him in a place where the only way he could look was up. He was flat on his back, he could look no other way but up. And as a nation, God's put us flat on our backs, dear people. The only direction we could look is up. And in many of the Psalms, we are reminded that it's the Lord who gives salvation to kings. It's the Lord who delivers his servants from the sword. And so in this Psalm, Psalm 144 and verse 10, David praises God as the one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. And then in the next verse, he prays for deliverance from those whose mouths speak lying words. And then beginning with verse 12, he prays that our sons may be as plants grown up in our youth, that our daughters may be pillars sculpted in palace style, that our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, and that later on, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. I can't remember a time in my life when there's more reason to give urgent heed to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. He says, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for kings and for all who are in authority. He gives special emphasis to this. I exhort first of all, of first importance, he says, in your prayer meetings, to pray about this. And then he multiplies synonyms to stress its importance. I exhort, therefore, first of all, the supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made. And then he adds concerning our prayer for those in authority, that we are to pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Now the blemishes of our president and of our other leaders they are painfully obvious to everybody that looks and sees. And if only instead of spending our time criticizing the faults of those who God has given us as leaders, if we would take that same amount of time and we would begin to pray that God would give them humility and God would give them wisdom and God would give them strength and God would give them courage to lead the nation in the right way. Instead of criticizing, we need to be praying. And all of us, you see, we hoped that this summer it was going to bring a, a marked reduction in COVID cases around the land. But the virus still rages in many parts of the country, less in New York, thankfully, but many other places. It's going full strength. But the prolonged nature of this trial, it's God saying to this nation, I'm not done with you yet. You haven't gotten the point yet. More of you need to be praying now. It's a call to persevering prayer. Early on in this worldwide pandemic, Copenhagen professor Jeanette Benson, she analyzed internet searches for prey in 70 countries, five countries. 
And then she reported from her extensive study her findings that search intensity for prayer doubles for every 80,000 newly registered cases of COVID-19. And she went on to say that Google searches on prayer have skyrocketed. This is good news. This is a little bit of good news, you see, in the midst of all this that's going on. Some people are praying more. They're asking about prayer. And if only the nations would continue to cry out to the king of nations. Pastor Hill regularly includes prayer concerning our nation and its leaders in our prayer list. And may God help us not to just tick that off as a request in a perfunctory way. May God help us to persevere in praying again and again and again about this issue. There are newscasters that seem to want to fill the whole hour with doom and gloom about the virus. And they want to keep the whole country shut down. They want everybody to be miserable. So miserable they're going to want change. And they're going to put different people in power. But God may have a different purpose in all of this. He might be calling us to greater intensity and greater perseverance in prevailing prayer. Now God has often been pleased to answer nations that pray in a remarkable way. In 1672, the Hollanders expected an attack from their enemies at sea. A public prayer was offered for deliverance. I wonder how much public prayer has been going on in this nation of ours. They prayed publicly together. And their enemies that were going to invade waited for the tide. They had to have the tide increase, I think, to, to, to land appropriately. But contrary to its usual course, the tide was delayed 12 hours. Can you imagine? The magnetic forces of the moon somehow was reversed for 12 hours. And they were forced to defeat, to, 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 to abandon their effort. And then a storm came up and it drove them from the coast. And this was an answer to the prayers of God's people there in Holland. May God use our national trials to stir up believing prayer all across this land. And may he be pleased to answer our prayers with unmistakable manifestations of his power. I get blessed every time I see Franklin Graham's little gospel message that he pays for and he regularly broadcasts on television, on the news channels. I'm not sure what other channels it comes across. He talks about people needing, the, their, their main problem being sin. He calls them to repent. He calls them to trust in the Lord Jesus. And I know that there, there's some probably theological differences that I probably have with my dear brother. But it makes me pray every time I see it. Every time I see that little message, instead of just bleeping the ad off, I pray that somebody out there in the country is listening to that message and calling upon the Lord Jesus to save them from their sins. And I think there must be a lot of other people praying the same way. And I believe God's going to answer these prayers. This is a call to prayer. But then a fourth thing I want to emphasize. We must guard against becoming violent partisans in national upheavals. And here I want you to turn with me once again to 1 Kings chapter 12. We must guard against becoming violent partisans in national upheavals. 
When the northern tribes saw that King Rehoboam didn't listen to their entreaties to lighten their burden, they said, what share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. And so they decided, we're going to revolt. We're not going to submit to your rule. And when Jeroboam returned from Egypt, they then made him king. Verse 20. And now notice what happens, beginning with verse 21. 1 Kings 12, 21. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord. This is an amazing message. The prophet says this. This is what the Lord says. You shall not go up and fight against your brethren and the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house. And notice his words. For this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. If I could have that much effect for one sermon, I, I would feel like I could die and go to heaven. I can't imagine having 180,000 people obeying me after I hear, hear what I just preached. That's what happened here. People all, all passionately aroused to go, to go. They're bloodthirsty. They want to bring back, you see, the kingdom to, to, to Rehoboam. He tells them not to do it. And notice two things in what he says to them. The first thing that we notice and it's actually towards the end of what he says, is that some events are manifestly from God. They're obviously, they came from God. Notice the reason why the Lord through the prophet Shemaiah told them not to go up and fight their brother. What does he say? Verse 24, this thing is from me. Now God's sovereign will is carried out in everything. Ephesians 1 tells us that he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. But there are some events that are so obviously from the Lord, so manifestly from God. In this case, we know that this was of God first because it was a matter of prophecy. Years earlier, another prophet named Ahijah met Jeroboam and he tore his own garment in pieces and he prophesied about the ten tribes being taken away from, from, from the king and being given unto Jeroboam. And we also know that this was from God, not only because of this prophecy, but because it was a matter of punishment. God brought this rending of the kingdom as punishment for Solomon's idolatry. And God ordained this evil. God ordained the rending of a whole country into two in order that he might chastise an even greater evil. And it was the evil of disloyalty to him. It was worse to be disloyal than to be divided into two nations. So the first thing that's stressed in this prophet that I de you, we, we note here is that some events are manifestly of God. But then the second thing stressed in these words in verse 24 is this. When an event is seen to be then of the Lord, it must not be resisted. I'm very concerned 
that no matter who wins in this coming election, that the election is going to be considered illegitimate. Of course, it'll be illegitimate considered by the losing side. Winners don't ever think it's illegitimate. It's the loser that does. And the temptation for revolt is going to be great. Already for three and a half years, there's been concerted efforts to get rid of an elected president. And it's likely that based upon John Durham's investigation, several individuals that have committed crimes in high places are going to be charged. But even if indictments don't come down, or on the other hand, if they do come down, and even if the president is reelected, it's not going to be the end of the story. And likewise, if he's defeated, it won't be surprising that voting irregularities are cited as reason not to accept the results. Our country, dear people, it hangs on the edge of a precipice these days. This is tenuous. And even now, many rioters, they're calling for dismantling the whole system of American government. Radicals, they want to scrap our Constitution as a racist document, and they want to start all over. And they're determined to get rid of every vestige of Judeo-Christianity as our heritage and to set up in its place a radical, socialistic utopia. Well, they got their utopia for a couple weeks there in Chop City. And what did that do? But they still want it. They think, well, they'll be able to do it better if the whole nation is involved. And what are they doing? They're holding our, our cities across the land hostage. And they're saying, in effect, we're going to continue to bash and burn and kill and destroy. We're going to keep it all up until we get our way. And others, they want to accomplish the same thing through political means. But they passively are willing to let our cities burn until the change comes. And we must not kid ourselves into thinking that there won't be radicals on the right, on the other side, that want to resort to violence, and some already have. But why do I mention these things? I don't say these things, dear people, to get you all stirred up and to get you all worried about the next election. I do this because I want to remind you that whatever happens in this coming election, let us take note that this is of the Lord. It's the Lord who puts kings in place. It's the Lord who puts presidents in place. It is our God that sets up one and puts down another. And sometimes he does so in blessing, and sometimes he does so in wrath. But we must not join in with those who resist, especially by way of violence, and resist what God has obviously done. And when it's apparent that God is saying, this thing is of me, to the rest, it is to, to see that it's all of God and to then rebel is to rebel against God. And rebellion against God is wicked. And in addition to being wicked, rebellion is wicked. It's vain. It's useless. Who's ever resisted the Almighty and prospered? Who's ever overpowered omnipotence? Whoever ran and outwitted the wisdom of God? To resist God is vain. And furthermore, this resistance will only lead to calamity and misery on all sides. Had Rehoboam gone forth to fight against the superior numbers of Jeroboam and the northern tribes, it might have resulted in the desolation of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And therefore the wise thing for him to do was to put his sword in the sheath. Proverbs 24, verses 21 and 22 say, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those given to change. Those that want to upset the whole system and burn it all down. Don't join them, he says. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that the two can bring. When a civil war takes place, the one thing that we know is that both sides lose. They both lose mightily in terms of lives and in many other ways. And so beware of taking up rocks and bricks, much less knives and guns by way of rebellion. William Plumer, who writes just after the war, his wonderful little book on providence, he says this, where the real interests of a country are at stake, let good men risk all except a good conscience in their defense. But let not good men associate with lewd fellows of the baser sort and their howlings against law and order. And instead of such howlings, how much better it is to follow the example of Daniel's three friends. They wanted to obey God and they were commanded to eat and to drink things that were contrary to God's will. And so what did they do? Did they start a rebellion? Did they start throwing rocks through the window of the king? And they start burning down his house? Is that what they did? They graciously made a petition to the king about what they wanted to eat and what, they, what God wanted them to eat and to drink. That's the approach we should use. And then finally, godly believers are a blessing to the nations in which they live. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14, 34. And since a right relationship with God, since this, you see, is the very essence of godliness, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 33, 12. And even when they were in captivity, even they were, when they were compelled to serve heathen kings, Daniel and his three friends, they were a blessing to Babylon. Joseph was a blessing to Potiphar's house. And this has been the case of uh, the history of our own nation. James Madison, our fourth president, one of our founding fathers, he once said this, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. Isn't that significant? Everybody thinks the government's going to save us these days. We've staked it not on the power of government. We have staked the future of all of our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. Righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness preserves a nation. And gracious manifestations of the gospel and of the word of God, these things are like salt and light that God is pleased to use very often. I've been very impressed with the testimony of Shannon Breen to the gospel on her nightly newscast at 11 o'clock. She doesn't pound the audience with a sermon. It's not appropriate for a newscaster. 
But she's spoken openly about her favorite place and her favorite time of the day. It's the time when she has her devotions. And every once in a while, she'll quote a Bible verse in her interviews. Just two days ago, on Friday, she interviewed Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health. She interviewed him about various medical issues that related to COVID. And later on in this interview, she mentioned that she had read Dr. Collins' quoting in one of his books. He was quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. And she quoted the verse. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And she said, this is one of my favorite verses too. It's been a help to me, she said, in getting through this awful crisis. And Dr. Collins said, I was an atheist. But I became a believer at 27. And I ran into the verse and I wondered what it meant. And I came to understand that God's strength is more perfectly revealed when we understand our weakness. And in all of his work, he says he depends upon the Lord. And he says there's truth in the laboratory and there's truth in the church. And Shannon then answered, a lot of us have felt very weak these days. And it's good to know that someone else is in charge. And the interview was closed with Dr. Collins saying, we're going to get through this with a lot of science and a lot of prayer. Well, I bless God for somebody that will get right on the national television and, and quote scripture and do it more than once. And um, such people, they're a blessing to this nation. May you and I, in, in our various capacities, be a blessing to the nation that God has given us. And may we pray for many others, like Shannon, to be raised up to give a testimony of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and of the righteousness that exalts a nation. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you are indeed the great God of all the nations. How filled with despair we would be if our only Savior was government, if our only Savior was the results of another election. How filled with great perplexity we would be if we had no God to go to but you. If we had, had no God to go to and, and we did not have you. The Lord our God, we, we pray, Lord, therefore, that more people would, would see that you are the king of nations. And we pray that you would help us to live in accord with the basic truth that we have preached today. Lord, vindicate your name. Magnify your great and holy gospel. Magnify your son, the Lord Jesus, whom you have made king. We plead with you, Lord, that this nation, it's this proud, rebellious, sinful nation, this nation would be finally humbled. You've taken, you haven't taken the plague away from us yet. There's still repenting to do. May that repentance begin in our own hearts. May we turn away from those sins that keep us from you. May this nation turn away from slaughtering unborn babies. May it turn away from, from its pride and from, its, from its, its covetousness and its many sins that 
are, are rampant throughout our streets. Oh, have mercy upon us, we do pray. Bring us back, O oh Lord. Even as that psalm we read in the first part of our service, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would arise, that once again you would show forth your face, that you would shine upon us, and that you would deliver us, even as you have done so time after time in days gone by. Have mercy upon us, we pray, for we pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.